0: Hey everybody, this is the first of many companion interviews we're putting out as part of the Potta bing Project. This conversation is with the talented and amazing Anne Crabtree. Anne did costume design for the pilot episode of The Sopranos. Since then, her career has been on a stratospheric trajectory. She has worked on shows like Justified, Pan Am, Luck, Masters of Sex, Westworld, And most recently, Handmaid's Tale. She just finished up work on a feature film called The Last Thing He Wanted, which is based on a book by Joan Didion and stars Anne Hathaway, Ben Affleck, Willem Dafoe, and Rosie Perez. So here's a fascinating conversation with Anne Crabtree, who was kind enough to go down memory lane. So Anne, welcome. Welcome. It's great to have you on Pata Bing. I'm so excited to be able to sit down and speak with you today. Just really rudimentary basics for those that may not know what does a costume designer do?
1: A costume designer is in charge of creating the look of uh, what the actors are wearing in conjunction with the director, sometimes with a production designer, usually with the cinematographer and the production designer, but primarily from the director. The goal is to create a beautiful symbiotic frame. And I think that the, I I guess I'm stilted in my answer because I feel like the answer to that question is changing. Okay. Yeah. For me anyway.
0: Um, how did you get into this kind of work? And perhaps a more holistic question is how did you get from South Dakota <laughs> to costume design?
1: Yeah. So that is a, uh, how much time do you have? I always say, but I, so I watched a lot of TV. In fact, TV was very responsible for bringing up myself and my older brother. Certainly... I was the first kid born in the States, uh, in South Dakota, and we moved to Kentucky when I was three. How
0: many siblings? Uh,
1: Two brothers, an older and a younger. The older one was born in Okinawa, where my mom is from. And so, you know, my parents, uh, my dad was away in the service. And then when he came back, he was getting his college education and working in a factory. My mom was working for the government and then uh, in a housing project where we lived and then, you know, went to work in a a factory as well. So, you know, immigrant, uh, you have immigrant parents, of I have course. an immigrant mother, they work all the time. Yeah. Like, that's just the name of the game. And
0: parenting is secondary.
1: We're both Asian. Yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, work is usually everyone's middle name. And it's certainly mine. Like, I certainly got that gene. But you know, they, TV, I mean, TV was amazing in the 60s and 70s. And, um, and it brought me up. And so we would run home and watch certain TV programs in the afternoon. But even beyond that, my mother and my elder brother would watch sci-fi stuff and horror stuff and night gallery and, um, you know, all of those. And then also my parents would take me to see Hitchcock early on. So I had a real affinity for well-written stuff (laughs) and beautiful visuals uh, at a very young age. Well,
0: Clearly, you have a knack for well-written stuff because your resume is amazing. You know, your work, especially most recently with Handmaids, has literally changed culture. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that's kind of a very loaded thought, but what's your reaction to that, that your work is changing and affecting culture, especially today?
1: It's, Vic, it's coming at a really good time, this question, because I've literally just said no to work for the first time in almost three years of working solid on handmaids on Westworld on another pilot. And I just finished a D Reese film called the last thing he wanted. And it's the first time in my life that I've said, Hey, I'm not going to work. And it's because of that. It's because of, you know, as an artist, I think it's important and often really difficult to take a minute and kind of sit back and say, instead of just moving on to the next train that's moving really fast. Where am I at? What just happened, really, is the thing. With The Handmaid's Tale, it affected me in such a personal way, and then there's the offshoot of, you know, the ripple effect of everything that's been going down. So what was the question? How does it...
0: Your work has changed culture. What's your reaction to that? My
1: reaction is just, wow. You know, I... I don't feel wholly responsible. You know, I came onto to that project because of um, Margaret Atwood, um, and even recently read it again before the end of season two, and it, it killed me again. And it made me—it re- was like a, you know, a coming back to the beginning at the end of something to say, you know, who I was 30 years ago is still who I am today when I read her novel. And when I saw the original film by—I um, forget the German director, but the producer is also on The Handmaid's Tale, Daniel Wilson— These very big things that affected my life in my 20s, excuse me, my 20s? Yeah, my 20s, I'm 54, uh, that I got a chance to express as an adult. I understand that it's affecting other people because, you know, I had to sort of take a minute, take a step back and realize that it was really affecting my personal life as well, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. (laughs) In a very abstract and very literal way.
0: I asked the question kind of selfishly because nothing I've ever done has changed culture. And so I've always wondered oh, well, what, yeah. what would the response be? And your response was was probably what I would say, which is just, wow. Like, yeah,
1: like, um, what do you say to that? you're
0: in this vortex now. Yeah. Um, and it's a very cool vortex to be in, but I just wanted to hear kind of the uh, the guttural reaction.
1: The guttural reaction is that, and, it, you know, the next reaction is always, okay, what the hell do I do next? Yeah. That's going to ever top like, that. Like, how do you top that? Yeah, and I... I don't even know if I can tell you all of the things that are coming because of that, you know what I mean, Uh, for me personally, and in the next two months, you know, until they're announced, but... My brain is sort of, what the hell do you do next? You can't just do
0: anything. You've created a new benchmark for yourself, in other words?
1: Definitely. But, um, you know, you want to do quality stuff. Yeah. Once you've done it, that's what you want. And I've certainly been that girl in New York and in L.A. as a costume designer who had to take stuff because of paying the rent. And, you know, everybody has those months where you still do that. You make that decision based on life. But I, once you do beautiful, meaty... Projects with great content, you want to keep doing it. It's like a, you know,
0: it's like a gateway drug. I was <laughs> going to say, creativity. it's an addiction. It's yeah. an
1: addiction to perfection of, of pursuit of it. Yeah. And to something visually that really uh, formed who I am, which was television as a kid cinema and television, both.
0: I'm going to jump back and forth between okay. questions like this and then more process-oriented questions because yeah. I'm very interested in how people, especially creatives, get stuff done. So How does it all work? Uh, <laughs> a showrunner contacts you, and then what?
1: Right, so so a showrunner a show's creator, someone who's written the script, um, it depends, right, on, on what level you are at and also luck of yeah. the draw, I think. And so um, let's say Handmaid's Tale, and we can also talk about Sopranos, because I was remembering um, for Handmaid's Tale, Bruce Miller loved my work in Masters of Sex, which is not exactly funny, but he is a straight man who um, remembered all of the fashion (laughs) in Masters of Sex when he was discussing what I could do for The Handmaid's Tale in the interview. I see
0: parallels all over the place. Oh, do you? And The
1: Handmaid's Tale, I mean, uh, that interview went on for two hours with Bruce and also Warren Littlefield, who's one of our main producers. And I just really, I liked what they had to say in terms of being novel and being different and being current. That really excited me because I... That's what excites me visually. You know, I'm not ever trying to to recreate something out of a textbook or, or out from a museum. Like, it doesn't—it interests me, of course. I studied art history, but—and uh, I love some old films, you know, but it's—as an artist or as a creator, I think you always are looking to make your mark on something, whether you admit it or not, right? And so— that's, that's what happened. They had a long conversation about what they didn't want. And I said, I wouldn't know how to do that if I tried what you don't want. Here's what I could do. And I came up with some crazy ways to go about Handmaid's Tale. You know, a lot of those ideas would have never worked.
0: <laughs> how, many, how many drafts fell on the cutting room floor?
1: Um, Not many, many. actually. Like I have to say that is a very kismet sort of job. I don't know. Again, I'm at that place where I'll never know if I can repeat that. I was given so much freedom because, listen, we're breaking new ground. That story has been told in I don't even know how many ways. It's been a novel. It's been on Broadway maybe more than once. It's been plays. It's been a film that I loved in 1990. And so I think everyone thought, let's don't do what's already been done. Well, that's a huge door to open for me.
0: Let's dial the clock back a little bit. What were you doing before you got The Sopranos Call?
1: Before The Sopranos Call... I was, so it's 19 years ago. Yeah, I I, think, and, I, and I
0: apologize. No, uh, but it's, it's okay. Uh, it's I, so I funny. Ho- I hope this is a fun trip down memory lane uh, for you. It
1: is. It's, uh, it's funny because I have a very bad short-term memory and a pretty good long-term memory. So hopefully that'll serve me well okay. in this podcast. But what was I doing? So that was 19, probably 98 because it came out in 99. And I think it was before though. I think it could have happened in...
0: Pre-production started way early. seven maybe. Yeah.
1: I can't remember, but I was struggling. You know, I I was at a place... Isn't it weird how people remember stuff? I remember sort of where my hair was at. <laughs> because there's big, you know, swaths of time. You know? I had hair in 1999, You see, I so. had really long hair. <laughs> I'm bald now. And I cut it off during the making of that pilot. But I, you know, I was kind of... N- Not exactly new to the scene in New York, but I was new-ish in the TV um, union scene. I'd been working on very low-budget films, and um, I honestly don't know what I did before that. Okay, Uh, but I'm sure that it was really low budget. (laughs)
0: Yeah. What can you recall the day you got the call from The Sopranos and who called you?
1: Well, I can only remember Eileen Landris. A uh, meeting with me, and she was this cool, young lesbian, and there weren't many, you know, in the industry that were out anyway. And she just was very singular and very, very intelligent. And that really struck me that this young woman was going to do this thing. And HBO was new. Like, HBO was just born, really, I think, with The Sopranos. So
0: the Sopranos put them on the map. That's in, it. You know, forever.
1: So the vibe, interestingly, as you bring up both Sopranos and Handmaid's Tale, it was kind of the same thing. Early. Early Hulu. Early HBO.
0: Interesting. That
1: is interesting. I yeah. didn't actually think about that till just now. So Eileen Landers said, we're going to go have coffee or something, dinner. I can't remember, with David Chase and, you know, silly me not Italian. I was like, "Oh, David Chase doesn't sound Italian." I will tell you this, you know, if you if any costume designer grows up, grows up into, you know, her career or his career in New York City, you will do a plethora of mafia films and or TV shows, especially in the 90s because probably because of Godfather and other films. You know, I'm not sure because it's there. It's art imitating real life and yeah. real life imitating art. So, so I'm sure that was part of it. Why I was called in, and I remember meeting David Chase. And actually, now that I'm thinking back, I think that I have. I was on um, a film called Dust, oddly with Joseph Fiennes, <laughs> 17 years ago. Is Full what circle. I what I said to him uh, last year in Toronto, and um, with a very good friend of mine, Melcho Menczewski, who was the director. So I was in. Um, Macedonia with Milcho making this epic film, epic like you know it was a hundred year film from 1900 to 2000. So I no that was the year before, and then I went to the Venice Film Festival. So I was in Italy for the first time, and then I was meeting David Chase. So I was all about talking about Italy and how much I loved it, and Italy in Italy, as you may or may not know, is different than Italy. New you know Italians in New Jersey, which I soon learned, and I think. I just was very taken by the idea that this was his kind of his own life, his own story. And so that was intriguing. And then
0: was he aware of that at that in these initial early meetings with you? Did he have the vision fully fleshed out? In your, in it's hard
1: to say, okay. right? Because I was so young yeah. and it was, um, it was not a new genre for me, but to meet someone who had family yeah. in Jersey and all of the other characters that I met, real right. <laughs> characters that right. inspired. I don't, you know, that's a question for David Chase. Yeah. I only know that he was brilliant and an intellectual, but very calm. And I liked those things altogether.
0: What was the vibe like? on the pilot. And the reason I'm asking that question is, uh, there was a huge gap between the first episode and then whether or not the show was going to become a series. Oh, really? I didn't um, even know. There was a couple of years elapsed between episode one and episode two. So wow. I'm just curious about the sense of, like, what, what did it feel like? Was there a sense of uncertainty? Was there a sense of confidence? Was there a sense of confusion? Or was there a sense of, you mentioned newness and freshness, was it a sense of this, like, youthful vigor that, like, they're going to, this is going to be something big? Do you have any kind of
1: I'm trying to remember. Recollection? I, I- don't remember a lot of hbo suits around which is interesting and they're like that to this day you know having worked on westworld and luck they kind of let people create masterpieces until they don't right and so i just remember listen pilots are really fast it's insane how much work you're putting together it's it's basically a film that's shot in a month Uh, or less these days, and your prep is probably just two weeks, or if you're lucky, a month. I can't remember what I had. But, you know, it's New York City. You're you're going up and down stairs and lugging, and, and it's still the same thing, only I was surrounded by great thinkers. I remember that, and it felt different. I don't know why, really, except that the research was super cool, and you know, I, <laughs> oddly, I'm this, you know, tiny half Okinawan mixed kid, but I have this predilection for rappers, hardcore rappers and, um, and mafiosos. And I think it's because I like to find the softness that's within the thug, you know? The and humanity. I, yeah. And yeah. I, I mean, maybe that's what made The Sopranos so huge, but it's, uh, you know, Biggie Smalls passes away, Tupac, and I was shattered. You know what I mean? And it's, I like, um, I like that kind of idea that it's a person is not who you think them to be. Perhaps that's because my packaging is so unusual and unlikely, right? I like unlikely heroes and the humanity within. And so all of that, like I was a kid that. Was getting such a huge education. I had no idea how raw and real it was until after the experience because it was so fast.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You you were kind of just in the moment and just doing it. You didn't really have That's how to, you have to be. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, for that show, there's such a corpus of knowledge. You know, there's the Godfather movies, there's Goodfellas. Um, yes, wh- Goodwill. Wh- when you're preparing for material like that versus The Handmaid's Tale where you have no real visuals to work from, yeah. what do you prefer? Do you prefer there being a corpus? of material or do you like to largely let your imagination go
1: i am a very stubborn visualist i would say an artist you know and i don't even admit that or i haven't admitted that till very recently i don't like to repeat what's been done i think i glanced at um What did you just say? The Godfather, Goodfellas, Analyze This, which was
0: a movie that was out, yeah.
1: Goodfellas, because I was going to work with Lorraine Bracco. Yeah. And she was in it. So I glanced at it. But, you know, these are are hugely successful Bibles for so many. But I didn't, you know, no disrespect whatsoever to Martin Scorsese because Lorraine talked about him in our fitting. But I just wanted, you know who I looked at? I looked at John Gotti. Because he was all over the place when I was living in New York. And he was a fucking rock star on the street. In New York, that's what was filled in the papers in the 80s and 90s. All of the mob families. It yeah. was so interesting to me because I didn't come from that. So I looked to real life folks within those famous families of mobsters. Interesting. For inspiration.
0: You mentioned Lorraine Bracco, uh, Dr. Melfi. As yeah. And she's known to fans of the show. Tony always looks different when he's on Melfi's chair. Oh really? Okay? And what I mean by that is, <laughs> compared to his other daily dealings, yeah, he when he's across the when he's across the room from Dr. Melphy, he looks more commanding, more self aware. Despite that being the place where he was most vulnerable and broken, mm-hmm. um, and my question is, th- this pattern remained consistent throughout the series. That's it interesting. It started in the pilot.
1: That's interesting. But it
0: didn't go away. It was it was yeah. it was a common thread throughout.
1: Did they use the same all wood? The room? oval room, yeah. Oh, okay. her, her office, okay. her
0: office didn't change. It might, okay. have, it might have Ma might have moved around. Sure, but the room was pretty consistent. What was the thought process behind that? I Is there know. anything you can reveal there? <laughs> I'm trying to think. The way that Tony looked in Melfi's office, in particular, because that's where, in in this show, in particular, that's where the fashion was on display. Yeah. Not only his fashion, but her fashion as well. And oh then, yeah. Not to speak of Carmela, which is a whole other animal. Sure. But Melfi and Tony, they they kind of have a they kind of have a thing uh, going on for yeah. s- for seven years. Oh, that's interesting. And I wonder if you have any sort of
1: sure. I mean, it's a long answer. I'll think the short version, the the most boring answer. And quick answer is, that color of this warm wood, I think I wanted to paint a picture. And, you know, I was working with this beautiful Russian DP, Alex. Sakharov. Sakharov. Alec Sakharov. And, you know, I remember him probably... Wanting to throw this book at me instead of sharing it with me because I was so not in the know. I thought I knew everything. I didn't Course. know anything. And he shared with me, I think it was the second project we had worked on together. So I'd had a little bit more experience, but he handed me this, you know, DP's. It wasn't even a DP's book, it was a book on color theory. And I was like, whoa, this Russian guy. Like, he thinks I have so much time, but I'm so proud that he gave me that book because I studied it. And I remember the conversation was this warm wood. You know, how do we I don't know if this was Alec or just me, because often I go on on my own visual tangents, but I wanted a kind of darkness You know, because black is very mental, it's very psychological, and it's uh, like a Dutch master's painting, right? You're going into a void, sort of. And so the light is around him. You
0: went there. Thank you.
1: That's where I'm always going to (laughs) go. Join me. (laughs) It's coming up. (laughs) So that's how it started. But then... The other conversation is, you know, Lorraine Bracco is a beauty and a brain like none other. And the way that she embraced me, I I was a girl who had come from fashion. And so thankfully we met on that page where she was saying, you know, of course, I am this therapist, psychologist um, or shrink. I can't remember. Yeah. Psychiatrist. And um, so she wanted to look powerful. And that was easy in that time frame to to create that look. But she, um, and this is a whole other tangent, so you can stop me at any time. She said, you know what, I think you should go to Yves Saint Laurent. And my eyes got giant because I thought, I'm sure we don't have that kind of money or budget, you know. And she was like, you know, Marty, Marty Scorsese in the fittings for Goodfellas would make her try on like a hundred pairs of jeans and he would sit there. Through all of them. And I was like, oh, wow, this woman, you know, she's going to know what she wants and it should be beautiful. And she used to model for them. So there's this whole story I can tell you if if you're interested. My time is your time. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. Uh, So she was just like, go up there, Madison Avenue, just go up there. Tell him that I need clothes. I love how clothes. you're using the
0: hands right now. The listeners can't uh, see you using the hand gestures. I use but, my hands
1: a lot. Well, the I'm Italians like very too. Itali- in the show. The Italians are uh, very, they're <laughs> very, uh, uh,
0: they use their hands well, a Lorraine lot. Well, Lorraine
1: did as well. Yeah. And she, I was petrified to go to Yves Saint Laurent. I mean, like I, that's like going to church for yeah. me, right? Especially at that age. And so... The morning came. The next day, I had a little tiny dog named Man Ray hidden in a bag. And that was the days where there weren't a lot of dogs in New York City. And uh, I rang the doorbell, not knowing what was going to happen. And um, this beautiful, older Italian dame answers, but in, like, kitchen clothes, like in an apron, (laughs) in this Madison Avenue store. And she's squinting at me and she's... You know, probably like this is the costume designer because I'm sure I was in jeans and a hat, you know, nothing's changed. And she lets me in and then I'm telling her the whole story like blah, blah, blah. I'm with this this TV show and Lorraine is going to play Dr. Melfi. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's in that bag? So the bag was moving. My dog was in there. And then she she goes, Is there a dog in there? And I thought, that's it. The jig's up. I'm gonna have to leave empty handed. And she goes, Let him out, let him out right now. And she locks the front door so nobody else can come in, so that Man Ray, my dog, who's a tiny minpin, can run through the whole expensive boutique.
0: Of YSL's boutique. Yeah.
1: And she's <laughs> like, We don't want anybody coming in and interrupting us. She goes, Did you ever see the women? the amazing, old, beautiful Hollywood film, The Women. And I was like, no, no, ma'am, I have not. And she goes, oh, my God. I thought, again, I'm going to, you know, get kicked out. She goes, come back here right now. So I go back to the back of this beautiful boutique, and it's just an office. Everyone's eating. It's all these old dames in aprons, like Italian style. It was amazing, and they were watching the women. And they said, we'll pull your clothes after you see this. You have to see this first. So I sat there in the back of... (laughs) Saint Laurent because of Lorraine Bracco and my dog, thankfully Man Ray, may he rest in peace, and got everything I needed for Dr. Melfi because she was a house model at one time. You Lorraine, know,
0: I noticed in the credits, I, that I'm I'm such a historian of the show that I I study the credits and they special thanked YSL.
1: Good, I asked them to. I didn't even realize. Yeah. You see. <laughs>
0: And I noticed <laughs> I that. Forgot. I was like, wow, for the pilot they had budget for YSL. We did it. And you just you just call it you just filled in the circles for me. Oh yeah. Thank you There's so much. There's lots
1: of circles. <laughs>
0: oh wow. That's amazing. I love that. I'm going to jump to the future real quick. Okay. Uh, for, for Handmaids, you mentioned color. So I just yes. wanted to ask you about color. okay? Because color palette is something that I talk about on the podcast a lot. Color palette is something that I'm obsessed with. Chiaroscuro, oh. you mentioned art, yeah. Dutch paintings, Caravaggio. Yeah. A lot of the scenes, I know you weren't involved in the show beyond the pilot, but the shading and the colors, the framing, yeah. um, it's chiaroscuro is what it is to me. For, and, for the Sopranos. For the Sopranos. Okay. Nobody's saying that. For Handmaids, though, the handmade Red is a different kind of red i don't know what i'm saying but what i'm trying to tell you is that it's its own brand of red that's so interesting my question is how did you do that uh, <laughs> i don't know it's not you know red. what it is it's not that and it's not the red that you look at on your yeah. cymk on your thing so, it is a very particular kind of red that i've never seen before that's f-
1: so interesting i okay so what i studied was painting okay what i studied was art history I never studied costume design. Handmaid's Tale was perfect for me because I could fall back on that education without even knowing. I did know a little bit when I was doing the research, but the red, red in film, red in TV can be deadly right? It can call too much attention. It can look hideous in the wrong light. And we went through so many different ideas of red. But I think for me, the only reds that I adore, you know, I'm Asian. Red is very cliche. And there for years, I wouldn't even go near red in my clothes in my life because it felt too cliche. And they would be like, oh, she's doing that because she's Asian. (laughs) (laughs) So oddly, right, you take a crutch and you make it work for you. So in looking for the red, I knew that it would be on screen a lot. I knew that it would be opposite this particular shade of blues, teals for the wives. And you would never be able to get away from it. Like once you created a uniform, it was in place and there's no going back. And we were following the novel. And it very clearly says what each tribal group is in with the exception of the Econo people. So I had to make a leap of faith, and we chose the red first. And we chose it based on a photograph that Reed Murano found, which had very, very, very dark red leaves. And in a very blurry background was this bluish-gray Teal and Reed said something to the effect of, you know, it's the 50s, it's like the 50s, but it's much darker, metaphorically, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, mm-hmm. In the future, it's life painted as perfect as it was in the 50s, but it's not. And so, that red, you know, ultimately looking for it everywhere, because what you have to do, because we make everything on the hammy's tail, is you have to either dye it each time and run the risk of it being wrong, or you have to find it. And I found it in a shade of a blood red cloak and dress. And, you know, I I focused on the idea of it being the color of blood because that's the perfect symbolism. Interesting, But also... Any shade that you find in nature will always be good for every skin tone. And that is the truth. And I'll stand by that. I mean, it could be wrong, but it's been working for me. So in looking for a shade of red, that would be on our skin tone, a black woman, um, a white woman, Lizzie Moss, blue-white, Samira Wiley, beautiful chocolate, and every shade in between. The color of blood is the right color. Because the color of blood is, our color is the same. Our it's color of, of blood, of <laughs> it's the same color. Yeah.
0: Fascinating. Okay. It's just, it's a,
1: I mean, it's kind of elementary, no, but it ends yeah. up being fascinating no, because a, the easiest answer is the answer.
0: Yeah. No. And sometimes the most simplest thing is is uh, the most profound at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the visuals are just simply stunning. And, and, and part of it is the color palette. Thank um, you. Yeah. And uh, just, it's one of the few shows where, in my opinion, it's actually anti-binge because it commands that you stop and reflect before you go to the next episode i couldn't go through it you know multiple episodes at a time because i was just like you know i was just taken taking aback, and yeah. uh just everything from the visuals to the uh the use of silence which is something that the sopranos does extremely well as well oh, Another really? two, huh. pa- two things two significant projects you worked on where the use of silence is actually deadening Back to The Sopranos for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is just something that you can also tie into your all of your work if you want, but it's, it's more of a thematic question. The show in particular, The Sopranos, the pilot, and then going forward is a show that has multiple generations in it with different styles and different sensibilities. How do you approach the multi-generational dynamic?
1: You mean familial ties and cohorts like
0: Junior Junior and Livia had their own fashion. Oh, I understand. They had their own style. And Tony had his own style. Yeah. And then I've told friends this and until I knew who you were I said you know the Sopranos popularized velour I wore velour jumpsuits <laughs> in you? 2001 because of they came back season one. they came yeah, back and yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna argue that you're largely uh, <laughs> responsible for that <clears throat> I'll take it there was a minute where velour was a thing and it was because of uh, Tony's crew Yeah. and it was cool and the open unbuttoned the, the use of jewelry and accessories so there's different generations that were dressed and I'm just curious about like how do you approach that if I, it's a complex that's a great problem, question. how do you tackle it yeah
1: so even even in fiction, even in fictitious uh, scenes or made-up stories vis-a-vis The Sopranos or Handmaid's Tale, I think I always am coming from a place of, I think this is the answer, I'm always coming from a place of absolute reality. You know, my favorite genre is documentaries, a place that never needs costume design, right? I loved watching the news, as a kid, it's, I don't know what that's about, but there's something, a need for absolute, utter reality or a mirror to society. And I think it's just my eye view, my worldview as a kind of weirdo growing up in Kentucky. I saw a lot. <laughs> and I think where I was coming from, to get back to The Sopranos, was I knew if I could get the reality right, then I would have something. I know that it changed, you know, after after me, after the pilot. But what I really wanted Stylistically,
0: to, though, not much. Really? I
1: heard that it did. I mean— it got bigger, like... It, like, it got like, bigger. Budget uh, changed. Junior. And, and jun- yeah. yeah. But... Uh, like but, why, like uh, more explosive, like his glasses got bigger. Yeah. And... But Tony... I think Tony, Carmella got bigger. Carmella,
0: Carmella went through several metamorphosis. Yeah. But um, the color palette the the sense and sensibility yeah it's very much all in the pilot and one of the things that David Chase has said about the show he doesn't like to talk about it and everybody's been dissecting the finale I've been dissecting part of the reasons I'm doing this is because I haven't gotten any closure with it this is my form of closure like Uh. you mentioned (laughs) off Mike but he said uh, people ask him what happened what happened he said look it's all there and I'm That makes sense. My argument is that it is literally all there, even in the pilot. It was fully formed. And I'm searching for, I'm turning over every rock to hear, like, did he really know this in 1997, Here's the deal. I don't,
1: I don't know. I mean, we're human, right? We're creative folks with vision, but we're human. And so I don't, the thing I've found, okay, after 28, 29 years of working is that you always love what you love. It doesn't change. You try not to be cliche or, you know, tired with your ideas. You try to stay fresh. But the things that inspire you tend to repeat in your life. I'm certain that that happens with writers. Mm -hmm. It certainly happens with me. David Chase was coming from a place of reality. He's coming from a place, and I don't know how much he said or not said about that. But I know that the places he sent me to in Jersey were his family's businesses, you know and mucho stories about that but so did he know that back in the day when i first met him i'm certain that he's a he's a brilliant man and a brilliant writer and this is his heart right this is his family so i'm sure that the arcs were in his mind yeah. but did he know it all i don't i don't know like i think you always start back from the beginning to have an end right That is the most base thing I hope I say this morning. But I think that I I don't know if he had it all. I mean, how could you? How could you and and write so fresh? It's
0: it's sort of a fanboy question, but it's just... uh, But uh, I get it. uh, There was so much consistency to the show. Yeah. From the framing, to the story, to the writing, to the fashion. Yeah. So, um, again, it's just fascinating to get these... I
1: will say, you know... First of all, I want to say that the designer for the rest of the whole, at least, I don't know if it was all the seasons, but certainly after me was Juliet Polska. Right. Polska. I would say that wrong. Just so she doesn't feel like I'm taking over her of thing. Of course not. And, you know, I've been there on Westworld where other folks have taken over or just on the pilot. So I know what it's like to not be mentioned. So respectfully, I'm mentioning Juliet. But for me, when I was doing the cast of characters, you know, I am someone who's quite uh, interested and reverent of elders. And so that's the story, right? The story comes from people from the old country, or at least with Root's even closer to the old country. Being the daughter of an immigrant, I know that very well. And so things get watered down and metamorphosize into something else. When you come to the States or another country, the family dynamic changes and the Italianness of things takes on a different hue, right? So, and I'm speaking about all countries, not Italy, because I'm certainly not from there. But in terms of, you know, Tony Soprano's mom.
0: My question is, what was that like? Nancy Marchand. Oh, my God. Dressing Livia Soprano. Amazing.
1: Amazing. And Uncle Junior. Mm-hmm. Like, they... You know that is the fun part, being able to do sort of classic old Italy. And I remember
0: was Junior's cap. Was that your idea, or did that? Did I'm you, trying to remem- I remember. I don't remember. Okay, because it's signature. That I mean, stayed with him forever.
1: I remember going. He's amazing, Dominic. Dominic uh, yeah. Chianese, right? But, yeah. but he was lovely to me. I mean, they all were. They yeah. all were. As was uh, Nancy, and. You know, there was a bit of a throwback to Sicily in her dress, yes. uh, coming to a barbecue, buttoned up to the top. Um, that I had to do, and I had just come from Italy, right? So that all of that you was in my fresh. brain, yeah. yeah. And then it, you know, things changed. With Tony Soprano, because of, you know, being an Italian-American in New Jersey is very different than being an Italian-American in Chicago. One of my dear friends is from a Sopranos-like family in Chicago. And it's very different in Florida. So you have to get it right, you know, the environment of Mm -hmm. where people are from. yeah, In order for the world to believe in these characters, that they're real, and to become invested in the story anyway
0: you achieved it in spades you know the characters from the, from the beginning uh, they feel so authentic uh, from the moment we're introduced to them the nail colors are things that people notice and pay attention to the accessories the jewelry the patterns in general for you how important are those details when you're creating signature looks is it is, uh, it, is it is it all in the details
1: a hundred percent you know you do like a it's hard to it's always hard for me to talk creatively in a not abstract way but you kind of create the first wash which are the bones of the person The things that the camera never sees. And it's largely psychological, right? And then you paint on top of that the details. So if I were to glance at you really quickly, I would say glasses, hat, thin wedding ring, keeps his phone on the table. You know, if I were painting a picture, see, I didn't see the plaid until just now. This
0: is, the, this is my signature right here. Oh, you see, gonna, I didn't get your signature. It's going to be, so be on my grave. You wouldn't
1: have hired me to portray you. <laughs> no, no, the hat is and, the hat. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's the details are everything. The details are what you want the camera to rest on when in the moments of those silences that you mentioned. I love it. To further, who is this person?
0: Amazing. I love it. Um, I want to be respectful of your time, but I have more questions. Oh, go for it. Okay. Okay, good. Because
1: um, it's for me, I'm like, fuck, 19 years. You know what I yeah, mean? I want no, to know what well, you know. <laughs> this, is, this, is the, this is
0: the next question. It's uh, it, something that I'm very curious about. Looking back, how did the show impact the arc of your career?
1: Oh, that's interesting. You know what? I didn't actually get it until years later. When did I get it? I, I think, you know what it is? There are certain things that men love. And let's just face it, most of the people that hire you are men until we change that. And so there's a there's a kind of club that loves the Sopranos. There's also a club that loves Westworld. They don't have to be men. I love both. I get it. As I said, I have a love affair with rappers and mafiosos, but it's interesting. And so I think... Later on in my career, and, and probably, I'm not certain of this, but it could have happened when I moved to L.A., and I was surprised. That's very ignorant on my part, but I didn't really understand that that story Is not just about mafiosos. It's not about an Italian family. Thank you. And so many people fall in love with everything that it is. But it started coming up in conversations. And, you know, listen, I've been at it for a long time. I forget how long I've done it because it's kind of what I've done as an adult career. Right. And so when it comes up in conversation, I'm so taken aback and surprised and then kind of whisper a silent thank god in my brain during interviews because i i realized that i've been so lucky that i've chosen things sometimes way purposefully and sometimes by happenstance because i needed the job that were brilliant in the writing and brilliant pieces that would live on forever so sopranos comes up for sure and thank God, people also love the pilot because that's what I did. Uh, it comes up with Handmaids. It comes up with Westworld.
0: The pilot is a Masters movie. Masters of Sex. Yeah, yeah, it um, is a movie. It is a movie. It was actually—I don't know if you know the history. There's no reason why you should. I haven't. I have an OCD <laughs> obsession with this stuff, so I've, I've <laughs> to to a fault. It's really bad. I'm, I'm I'm in the doghouse with my wife. It's not good. Um, but he didn't think it was going to become a show, David oh, Chase. Oh wow!
1: I he, don't know that he
0: put all of his marbles into this. Is like you know, I want to be a, I want to be a filmmaker. So the pilot was his movie. It was oh, his feature. He wanted to make it so that if wow. that was all you saw, that was his movie. Yeah. And that's what I mean by I have such profound respect for the pilot because uh, I'm a creative person or I'm a yeah. wanna-be creative person. And to be able to have the humility and the confidence and the fear, but also the audacity, all those things in one to say, look, I'm doing it. I got my shot and I'm going to let it all out there. Oh, yeah. And then to be able to go back and watch this 19, 20, you know, years later, it's still all there.
1: I'm going to watch it again. It's, I, a confident,
0: I it's a confident, beautiful display of somebody getting their shot and then taking it.
1: But see, that's what... So David Chase has that in common with Kurosawa. He has it in common with Scorsese. He has it in common with Spike Lee. He has it in common with David Lynch. And what I think they have in common in the most simplest sense is they tell the truth. They tell pure truths about things they love. And I I don't know if that's the answer, but, you know, I love that. He made that this his film and he went for it. And that's why the details have weight. Yes. That's why the story has weight 19 years later. I want to watch it now and see the mistakes I made. But, Um, you know. The
0: (laughs) the fact that you want to go back and watch it makes me happy. I do
1: because of you.
0: I have a a funny (laughs) joke where I tell people, there's some people I know, believe it or not, in my circle that haven't even seen the show. Okay. Um, And and I say, you know, I actually, I just want to watch you. Watch it because they're young, or uh, it just didn't come age up, or, or, or yeah, they, it didn't come up. I came to it late. I came to it when the show was actually in season three. You know, oh, wow. I was I was a student in California. I Why? didn't know it. I took a job on the East Coast. Yeah. I took a train up to New Jersey where my cousins <laughs> lived. They said, come visit us. And uh, they said, we're watching this show. It's called The Sopranos. And they were midway through season three and I watched it. And again, for me, it was the color palette. And okay. it was the use of silence. And I, it, you love what you love, right? You said that from the beginning. Yeah. And you know what you like. And I had a curiosity about the mafia, but it wasn't my thing, right? A California boy. Yeah. But it was it was the framing of James Gandolfini. It was the um, it was the dynamic of a man and or a person and their therapist. I love that you start the show with uh, Tony sitting in Melfi's waiting room. Yeah, and again, these are the little details. He's wearing a black shirt, a polo, and he's wearing his earth tone pants. It doesn't change much. He gets a little crazy with the patterns, but he gets the suits going later on. But you start there. You're just
1: reminding me of so many things when you talk about Tony in that chair. I mean, I remember thinking, "Here is this Hulk of a man, huge, you know, Gandolfini." Was always so intimate and quiet and personable, very quiet, but he was this giant of a man. And, I, and so I wanted the elegance and that quietness in that giant of a man in his clothes. You I remember it. that yeah. for that moment.
0: The way that camera's looking at him, it's got at an upward angle.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, you see his shoes and his socks even have details. There's <laughs> details in the socks look. because it's like, wow, this is a mobster. But he's really putting it on for Dr. Melfi from oh, yeah. the beginning. Oh, like yeah. A, he treated her differently from the beginning. And he yeah. it was one of the few women, you know, he's you know nobody you want to take moral lessons from on, on a grand scale. But he treated her with an aura of respect. Yeah, it, I remember it was that in conversation. in the beginning. Yeah, I um, do remember that. And it carried that. through. I mentioned frame to you earlier. I'm fascinated by frame, the optics of shots, the angles, the chiaroscuro, the light. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how frame impacts decisions on costume and design. How important is it? What's in the frame? What's not in the frame? What do you think about when you think of frame?
1: So I think of frame as being everything. And it's not that I'm I think I am actually self-editing. I think I am doing that when I'm having fittings. You're given a nanosecond of decision-making time in television and in film these days, having just finished one. It's the same. And so in the fitting, if I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, what's super important, I'm going to consider what the framing might be. Saying that, I'm not saying I'm a DP, a cinematographer, but I have always... You know, I didn't have classic education for costume design. In fact, I had zero for costume design. My brain, when I'm when I'm gathering visual materials or when I'm having a conversation with a show's creator or a director, They always say yeah what about the clothes because I never talk about clothing you know I talk about how you should be framed between those two wooden slats with one in the center and how that's important as a kind of religiosity in my brain like I've always and Lord knows I'm sure I was influenced by great films that I saw from Hitchcock who was all about the frame right or Kurosawa or all of those greats like I think we just happen like you to to latch on to things that we like. And the way that I create in a fitting the costumes that are going to be in the frame is I try to consider respectfully the art of putting that together with a DP, most especially the DP. And beyond that, I try to think as a director thinks, because I'm meeting the actor's most likely before the director ever meets them Mm. in television, especially always, oh my God, always these days. I try to consider what are the things about that person that might enter into the character that will be intriguing visually, that I can heighten with the costumes. So it's a lot of extra chatter in my brain creatively, but what it does is it streamlines the visual down to its bare essence on a good day, (laughs) on a lucky day of decision-making so that I am editing as I go of what's the most essential, what is telling the truth, what says the most about this person in front of me. And I even shoot the pictures in that way. And I make little movies on my phone of how the fabric moves. So the frame is everything, everything. You can't, you cannot not uh, respect the frame. Or are you you have a big jumble of things that don't go together.
0: The constraint of the frame also gives you a little bit of focus too, right? Like it's also sure. in a way it's liberating because you have the frame. You've worked with the best. David Chase, David Milch, Michael Mann, Margaret Atwood, Bruce Miller. What distinguishes these people in your mind from others?
1: Oh, wow. When you say it, I kind of get the chills, right? It's crazy. It's crazy, David Melch, I miss him so much. Please come back to me, David Melch. <laughs> That's a brain. You know what? The thing that distinguishes them.
0: And do they possess any similarities?
1: Yes. So the first thing that came to mind when you were saying the names is humanity. These are beautiful. I want to cry when I say this because it's really true. I'm trick. crying inside. <laughs> I, you know, I always just tell you the truth because I'm from the South and there's no, no way around it. But when I think about those people, I miss them so much when I work with other people. I can now add Dee Reese to that list because she is one in the Amazing. same. These are brilliant thinkers who have no choice in my brain, collectively, individually, than to tell the truth, to express truths, and to express the humanness In the characters that they're talking about, whether they're writing them or directing them or dreaming them up, it's all the same. And I think that resonates with me on a huge level because, you know, I can say this at this age and hopefully still get hired, but I I always felt when I would read a cheap script that it was disrespecting the people, the potential of the people within that script. If it was a bad script. Hmm. And, you know, I never finished college. And so intellect, intelligence, I'm going to throw that in because I'm from the South. Intellect and intelligence, you know, that's huge for me. I don't like it when there's a cliche in a script because it just means that writer hasn't considered the depth of that person, even if they're a streetwalker, even if they're a killer or a mafioso or whoever, a homeless person, there's still a depth to them. And so all of the people that you mentioned are great thinkers have huge compassion for humanity. And all of them have been teachers. It's crazy. You know, I didn't finish school. I finished school by <laughs> by working with those cats because...
0: Best professors you've oh probably my ever had. God.
1: Have. Yeah. I mean, especially to have, you know, out of the bunch, I will say the one that I've read, really, is Margaret Atwood. And so to work with someone like that after... Being in love with the words is crazy. I studied Shakespeare. Out of all the writers in college, you know, too bad I can't meet him anymore. <laughs> right, <laughs> but it's it's like um, it's a very insane gift to be Isn't able to the work actor with someone. That
0: did Shakespeare in Love the same actor on *The Handmaid's Hill, Or Is that his brother? Is Who's that Joseph Fines?
1: Oh, you're right.
0: <laughs> yeah, so you can't you can't actually go back and that's see Shakespeare. That's
1: insane. I have to kid him about that you said that now. Um, yeah, that's true.
0: I have a handful of more questions, kind of like a lightning round, so they can sure, be quick, go yes for or no. Yeah. but yeah. I'm a big music head, and I read that you get inspiration from music sometimes before sketching. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more on that and where and how inspiration hits?
1: Sure. So the answer is I always, always get... Uh, inspired by music. And I actually had to be reminded by an assistant on The Handmaid's Tale because I was having horrible... Not writer's block, but designer's block. block, yeah, artist block on season two. And, you know, I can only uh, explain it in this way, and hopefully it'll make sense because I'm going to paraphrase. But once I was driving home on Sunset Boulevard, nearing my turn off, you know, in Echo Park, and this thing came on, uh, on uh, NPR. And it was about how—I'm I'm, going to get it wrong, but I'm going to try to get it right—how to explain— The colors in a painting to a blind person, okay? Very difficult, profound, right? Yeah. I just heard your breath. And so I thought, that's it, that's it. That's what I'm trying to do, I think. Not someone who studied music, but is so affected by it. You know, I love to play the violin back in the day. I really love to play the cello. I play it super badly. My sweetheart understands music, is self-taught with the trumpet and the bass. And he bought me these instruments, and I think he's sad about it, you know, because I just want to play the punk version of something out of emotional expression. Yeah. And so I'm absolutely affected by strings when I am thinking. This piece on NPR talked about, and I can't remember which piece it was, but it was a classical piece to describe a painting. And it resonated. I want to find it again, because again, I have a horrible memory uh, for details, but it made sense to me if I were to explain to a person what the colors were, metaphorically speaking, not literally, to a person, what would that look like? You know, that was the perfect Ideology for what I try to explain. And then getting into the opposite end of it, because I'm a visual person and not um, someone who creates with, you know, sound. I've always been deeply affected by s- sound through art, you know, people, artists that use sound in their music. I've always been affected by, you talked about being affected by silences. That I is would, a sound too. That's a sound too. Yeah. And I would love it. Sometimes more than anything, I always would laugh about someone saying like the talkies ruined everything. Sometimes I don't want to hear like the thing that affects me the most. I've been told I'm too uh, empathic. Too much sound affects me in a crazy way. So people that work with me are very aware of that, that it has to be dead silence or the right sound when I'm creating. You can do anything you want when I'm not creating. Right? But I'm probably gonna have my headphones in. Right. And so the things that I usually play to get started. Again, reaching for the same crap every time.
0: (laughs) So your 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 rotation list is is pretty consistent. It's It's not context specific. It's two
1: or three, and it's odd. It's such a weird uh, conglomeration of where I come from. I think, but I love Philip Glass. I love Ryuichi Sakamoto. I love Aretha Franklin gospel. So I'm going to throw that in. And people have often said, (laughs) folks from New York or LA are like, I don't really get like this. Is before she passed my sweet Aretha Franklin, but I would listen to, I didn't grow up in like a Baptist church in Kentucky. I grew up in a very conservative Episcopal church, but I went to the tents of my friends, you know, revivals and people speaking in tongues and all of that crap really fascinates me. But beyond that, when I first learned to drive, I loved to Because you could you could find these stations late at night on AM, (laughs) you know, gospel or a folk music. You know, Woody Guthrie was a favorite. So sometimes, like for Westworld, I would play only Woody Guthrie, okay, or Depression era's music for every genre, including this film, uh, The Last Thing He Wanted, I reach back to Aretha Franklin. It's what I, gospel specifically, it's what I play when I'm on the road, when I'm on road trips, which is the kind of, yeah, the kind of emptying out of the mind before the next project. Um, And Philip Glass, you know, is another, because it's uh, often the things I reach for are sound, just sound without words is the thing that really gets me right in. And it's usually strings.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. Well said. How would you describe your own personal style and has it evolved during your career?
1: Hmm. Have I ever answered that? I will say this. I (laughs) <laughs> what's what's the Steve Martin answer? I was a poor black child. I was a very poor kid in Kentucky, and I wore my brother's clothes growing up by proxy. I had to. And so my mother would make a beautiful dress, uh, and when she did, it was awesome. But I grew up wearing boys' clothes. You know, I'm a straight girl who loves dressing like a boy. Now it's in fashion, and now it's considered cool. Back in the day, I think... People just didn't know what I was and people often called my brother and I twins because I guess my mom had one, one look <laughs> to the clothes she bought for us. But So I still dress like that and I, I kind of wear, a, kind of, I do wear this uniform of, you know, overalls and a hat and, you know, a tie with the overalls and it's just my kind of respect to workers in life uh, like workers in the depression era or workers and you know I love inventions and often the the photographs I love are of men in these beautiful workwear photos or workwear clothing that they're made to last they're made for workers and that's what I am you know and so that style is what I wear every day and it doesn't really fit the mold of what maybe designers are supposed to look like. But I think but it's actually is, the truth.
0: But what is the mold?
1: The mold, oh my lord. I see,
0: mean, let me segue that to this question. This, What do you think about style and fashion today? We live in such a visual age where everyone can see who's wearing what. Right? Do you think it's harder for people to take risks when it comes to style now because everything is so scrutinized and analyzed and overanalyzed? Or do you think it's an actual opportunity to put your vision on display, if that makes any sense?
1: I think both are true. You know, listen, I'm going to sound like an old lady I feel very youthful and young-minded because that's how I was raised as an Okinawan. We don't know age. And I've often felt like uh, a child in terms of what I like and don't like. So I have no problem with fashion and what people consider fashion. I will just say that it does feel... To me, because of social media, it feels like people grab onto things, aka the Kardashians, as a kind of stamp as what one must do to be a sexy woman. I don't think that's true. You know, and I know that I'm probably in a super tiny minority who who can say that, but I believe that, listen, I can only talk about what works for me. I still love fashion, but you know... I've never strayed from like Comme des Garçons and Yoji Yamamoto and those guys because they're inventors and they're artists first and foremost. Vivian Westwood, mm-hmm. same thing. And so, you know, I went through years of dressing crazy in New York and I can still do that, you know, um, but it feels like drag. What feels really real to me is wearing what I wear. And it's it's also a kind of embracing at a very late age um me as a southerner me as a you know dirty south (laughs) country (laughs) kind of cat like in this very bizarre packaging it's um there's some grace in that in just sort of admitting who you are and um people are all like when i dress up i really dress up right as I have to
0: architectural
1: I mean yes like I designed something super cool for the Emmys coming up but I you know when I'm in when I'm in my skin that I feel really comfortable in that's when people say wow well, who are you wearing like what is that I mean where do I get that it's funny right like when you tell the truth about who you are I think people think it's a cool thing but really it's just what is second nature
0: yeah before we say goodbye, um, I want to thank you. This has been oh, an cool. absolute treat. <laughs> You're um, I'm always curious, you might not have an answer for this because you are living the dream. But if you didn't do costume design, what would you do? What would, if, you, if there was a you parallel universe for Ann Crabtree, what would she be doing?
1: Well, what I want to do is make documentaries, and I've started Amazing. very, very fits and starts, as my friend says. But um, I want to make documentaries. I want to write. Um, I am a writer, I should say. I should clarify. Um, I just haven't shared it. with. I've been, like, hiding it under everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, what I want to do is be a hobo on a train and just ride the rails. Like, that's what I really want to do. And I want to go everywhere. And I love that kind of freedom. You know, I think that's why I'm always... People laugh and say I should have been a truck driver the miles that I drive, but it's kind of the only time to be really alone.
0: Driving is the best. Driving is the best. And finally, um, are there any upcoming projects or causes that you'd like to mention? Oh, of course. Thank
1: you for that. So the film that I've just finished weeks ago, two weeks ago, is a uh, Joan Didion, another brilliant writer. <laughs> Big eyes. Joan Didion. If you're listening, thank you. Thank you for the year of magical thinking. Thank you for all of that. And so she uh, wrote this novel, The Last Thing He Wanted. And Dee Rees directed this amazing film in Puerto Rico and Miami. And um, Cassian Elwes, who's made, I don't know, maybe more than 500 films, is behind it. And he's such a great thinker. Both of them are. Um, So I was in rare water, you know.
0: Did you get to meet Joan Didion?
1: No, but do I want to? Yes. And so um, that's with Anne Hathaway and Ben Affleck and Willem Dafoe, who's one of my heroes, and Rosie Perez. I mean, it's got an amazing Amazing. cast. And then, um, so that's the last project that I've just finished and I've just turned down so much work in order to get righted again after a very intense uh, two years on handmaids. I'm not going back. Uh, So that's interesting. So
0: you're done with handmaids?
1: I just, I said no about a month ago.
0: Can you share why?
1: I can. It's interesting. I don't know that I know yet. You know what happens when you're working, you're in a cyclone and you don't take time I say you I'm you know saying me but I just assume it's that way for everybody and often you know we're nomads we're just going from job to job mostly not in LA and so yeah I said no before this thing in Puerto Rico but um, I was working on that film and you know it's for many things I feel like I've created so much for that show, how could I create a More. season three? I mean I felt that way season two and I went back and I still did it you know I still did new stuff. I love all of those people. it was not about that. I Warren Littlefield. I want to just be an intern for him. And for Bruce, a writing intern, but i I want to do other stuff.
0: Okay. And I think I it's it. the one That's thing so that... so confident of you to say that. I want to do other stuff. No, you have a it's great thing. It's not confident. No, it is. To say, to, <laughs> say I need to, I need to take inventory. I, I love well, that. It's Well, because amazing. I
1: never have. Yeah. I've never said I'm taking a break in all these years. Not, not once. You know, I'm an immigrant's kid. Like we are hardwired to keep working. And what happened was I said no to that. Because for as large of a part as I played in that show, the credits, you're way down, you know, and that's something that just came up in Variety like last week. It's a really hard thing to sit with that you've created this political iconic symbol, but you're considered way down here, you know, not by the people you work with, but legally, logistically, you're lower than the ADs, you're lower than the The PAs that are with DGA, no disrespect to them at all because everybody works hard. But costume designers give up their whole life to go to Canada, to go to Puerto Rico and Miami, everywhere but home. You have to drop everything, work 18 hour days, six to seven days a week. You can't do anything else. Like it's impossible unless you have like three assistant designers. I tend to work with no assistant designer because I prefer that. I prefer to have control. I think I got so much from doing that show. It was also so close to me personally, you know, and some of the subject matter really triggered some stuff in me, you know, personally, politically, um you can't be a brown-skinned person in America and not be affected by what's happening. You can't be a woman in America today of any race and uh not be affected by what's happening in this country and other countries. I think I just needed a minute to write myself. Is what I keep saying to myself. I actually haven't figured it out, but there were some things in my life that I actually came out to the UN about being abused as a kid that the show really triggered. You know, yeah. and so the show is difficult. It's difficult. I haven't even seen it past Are a certain episode. Me? No, I had to binge. So you're not current. I am so not current. Oh my gosh. I had to binge a few of the episodes to put myself up for an Emmy, but I could only go up to episode six, and I had to do it so quick. Of, of season two. Mm-hmm. Because I was working, Yeah, you know, on D. Reese's film, and so that's just life. You have to, like, quickly decide what is your best moment yeah. in a year of working. It's hard. I think what I really want to do is... Well, I don't actually know the answer to that, (laughs) (laughs) But, but I know that I want to continue doing projects that matter. I just think I'm hugely opinionated and, you know, I just think it's hard, you know, it's hard to keep going. You know, I want to be a woman that someone looks to to tell a story, maybe not just with costume design. Yeah. whether it's in the writing or or in the directing. But I also want to do my own projects. And I have done projects with my sweetheart as a producer, you know, of short films. But I want to do my own now. and
0: You want to scale it. I bit. do, yeah. I do. And this has been an absolute delight. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> Thank you so much <laughs> for too. being a part of this series. Yeah. Um, I look forward to seeing more of your work. Oh, and yeah. um, I'm a huge admirer. And uh, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. so
1: much. <laughs>